0: Hi, welcome, I'm Ren Moreau, and I'm a writer, editor, and a podcast host for New Books Network's Animal Studies channel. My guest is Taya Brooks-Priback, preback is an, the author of Enter the Animal, a cross-species perspectives um, look at Sorry, Cross Species Perspectives on Grief and Spirituality, which was published this year by Sydney University Press. Uh, She's an independent researcher in animal studies with a particular interest in cross species grief as well as spirituality as a bodily focused non denominational engagement. Taya lives in the rural Blue Mountains region of New South Wales, Australia, and her work draws on scientific research as well as field and personal experience with non human animals. So welcome, Taya. Thank you, Ren. Um, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Yeah, I wonder, um, could you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your research background, and what led you to write this book? Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a bit of a long
1: story, but uh, so I am, <laughs> in the okay, Bl- <laughs> I am in the Blue Mountains at the moment, um, and it's um, it's been raining all week, so I live with sheep here and some other animals, and I've been, everyone's been pretty depressed, but uh, we're coping. Um, so I um, live here now, but I was actually born and uh, grew up in, in, a coast, in the coastal region of Slovenia, near the border with Italy and Croatia. And um, as a child, I spent quite a bit of time with a dog called Bobby, <laughs> but I didn't actually much contact with um, other animals Um, later in high school a friend of mine was a vegetarian and that was um, my first encounter with sort of someone that was thinking in that direction so i ended up being um, you know at various times a vegetarian myself and then a pescatarian and a flexitarian most of the time i was a flexitarian until later um when i moved here um I met my husband, um, so we moved here because he had a, you know, I was just out of uni and he had a permanent job here, so it made sense even though we do do go back every year. Um, And um, I got a bit more involved in this um, uh, um, animal sort of advocacy movement, animal rights and advocacy. And um, I kind of, um, I was reading a blog Online, I can't even remember the author and this person was saying to me, you're personally responsible for what's going on, you know, out there um, in factory farming and, you know, generally speaking, in farming and in, 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 in that industry um, that um, sort of uses and abuses a lot of the time animals. And uh, it was the first time that someone actually said it so outright. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's true. And so I turned vegan kind of overnight and um, and then I was really excited, you know, I wanted, like, every new vegan I think is goes out, you know, to people, wants to tell them, and together we're going to, you know, change this terrible thing that's going on out there. But then I realized that no one actually wanted to hear about this. And so after a while, I sort of decided that I needed to know more about it myself, you know, to understand this speciesism a bit more and uh, also to understand animals a little better, I'm thinking that's that to me sort of helped me, um, well, um, basically to, to, to talk to people, but also, you know, just for myself. And so I, um, I thought focusing on a particular project as a, you know, as a PhD project that would um, sort of give me um, enough focus, but at the same time enough to sort of amplitude. Um, and so I did enroll in, in the PhD program here at Sydney University and um, eventually I settled on grief. And um I worked on that for quite a while, part-time. And it was just fascinating. I was like, eye-opening. I just, I'm so glad I did it. Yeah, so that was uh, how I got into this. And then nothing. I, I just finished my PhD. It took a while because I was part-time. And then sort of people read it. I mean, the examiners, the external examiners reacted very positively and... Um, they sort of encouraged publication and then, you know, the um, the press heard about it and uh, they asked me to submit it. And so I kind of rewrote it a little bit,
0: turned it into a book and um, that's it. Mm. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, So to get into the book a bit, um, throughout the book, you use the terms um, human and non-human animals and you raise questions that, sort of trouble this um, strict separation that, you know, conventional Western culture places um, between human and non-human subjectivities. Um, And I wonder if you could speak a bit about um, in the way you wrote this and um, letting go of anthropocentrism and anthropodenialism um, in the way that we think about uh, non-human animals emotional lives and their capacity for spirituality or grief
1: yeah um now I'm sort of thinking was non-human I sort of use non-human mostly through the book but people are saying sort of that's um kind of exclusivist in some ways maybe it would have been better to use other than human and that's okay I accept that actually uh I still think that non-human is better than just saying an animal <laughs> uh but mm-hmm. um <laughs> Um, yeah I mean, like when I started to read about um everything about animals, really um, you know, the neurobiology, the ethology, I just started to realize how similar we are there's really i mean um separations are superficial, I mean deep inside, we're really, really comparable. I won't say same, obviously we're not the same, but um we are very comparable, and so um. Um, when I delved into this grief issue and the attachment theories, especially, and sort of I realized how we all come to be in in a very similar way, you know, attachment relations are very important. And so my aim, basically, um, in this with with the thesis first and then with the book was to build a theoretical framework that would enable us to discuss grief across species in a more kind of rigorous and realistic way. Because, you know, normally people say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that other animals can feel grief. I've sort of seen them doing something. (laughs) Uh, But, but, and there's this but kind of, and uh, followed by many assumptions. And I thought, well, it would be useful to have a look at those assumptions first, as well as. Um, At what actually enables grief as um, as an emotion, but now that people are reading the book and I'm getting feedback, I was kind of surprised that people are saying that the book has empowered them. I mean, not just not just in terms of learning stuff about other oh, animals, that too, but but they say that it has helped them to understand themselves better, you know, their own grief and and other aspects. And uh, I guess it makes sense because the book is about um, other than human animals, but it is about well, Basically, it is about animals, and we are animals too. So um, um, it's it's a book about us as well. And the light material throughout the book is grief, but um, the book itself is not all about misery. I must say, um, I actually see it more as a celebration of life, and you know our shared capacities for love and and joy and relationships, uh, but of course also pain, because basically we share capacities for physical. And psychological resilience, um, as well as vulnerability, with um, other animals. And so the book presents a more, let's say, integrative view of other than human animals, of uh, their subjectivity and you know our subjectivity. And um, and there was already so much knowledge out there that it was um, you know a surprise, but of course also thrilled. And because uh, I mean, like my focus was grief, but um, I also felt, well, it would be good to have a broad understanding of the issue of subjectivity, you know, including things that fuel denialism and prejudice against other animals. And so um, the first chapter is a a more general presentation of some of the history of research and thinking into animals' lives here in the West, um, you know, social lives as well as um, intimate lives. Um, And uh, some of the problems of this uh, objectivist project, you know, this attempt to be so-called objective in our research and thinking of other animals. There's nothing wrong with objectivism, it's just that objectivity turns out to be a little less straightforward than than we sometimes assume. Um, You know, there are important aspects, objective aspects of, of the research process, but there's also a lot of subjective influence that will determine what we see and what we look for. And that's what's been happening all along. You know, for example, for a while, everyone was fascinated with primates, and that's great, primates are <laughs> incredibly fascinating. So people would be asking interesting questions about them and developing you know, interesting experiments that would help answer these questions. Uh, so we end up with a lot of data showing how complex primates are, you know, cognitively, emotionally, socially, But no one was looking for this kind of complexity in other animals, like, say, farm animals, especially. Um, And this doesn't mean that farm animals are not complex. It just means that, you know, we don't have data because people weren't looking for it. But, you know, things are changing at the moment, and that's great. Um, So this was a little bit more general, and it will help, I guess, uh, people to understand where we we are and um, how we got here. And where we are is really, it does show this comparability. Um, You know, other animals also have societies and they have social norms like we do and things like that and and meaningful relationships. And, um, you know, the prevailing theme is not aggression as we've been taught all along. It's actually cooperation. That's what they do. That's how they survive. Um, So there's a lot of changes that happened just in the last, you know, 10, 20 years of, of, of how we, see animals and how we're able to talk about them because before we had this you know ban on discussing subjectivity in the first place. and so this was um this is the first chapter it's a bit more general and the second one is um discusses attachment theory uh, and in this chapter we get a better idea of how we come to be who we are and i mean us you know humans but also non-human animals um, and the importance of these attachment relations for our development um you know we are born when we're born or, or hatched, <laughs> um, our brains and our, um, you know, regulation, psychobiological regulation system is still developing. And this all happens in conjunction with, uh, with our parents or our caregivers. And the same is true for other animals. And, you know, if you think what we do to other animals, how we separate them from parents and things like that, how we totally disrupt their um, upbringing and their lives later. And it's just uh, kind of... Horrible. So I'm hoping that when people start to learn more about um, animals that we, we may uh, sort of change um, attitudes towards them because I actually do believe that most of us are good people and like we think ourselves as good and uh, as moral and uh, we'd like to do the right thing. But, you know, we're also dealing with a long history of misrepresentation of other animals and of misconceptions and, uh, 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 yeah, this uh, beautiful notion that I actually came across. And I think I did include it in the book. I read it in a paper. Someone was suggesting that we shouldn't give away our right to not be a perpetrator. And I think this is an incredibly powerful concept. And like, things are happening out there, we may get a little intimidated by the, you know, bigness of the system. And we feel powerless and uh, we want to think that everything's okay but you know everything is not okay and we are not powerless because um the choices we make are actually impacting um impacting you know their lives other animals lives as well as other humans lives there's a lot of human abuse too in the in the animal in animal agribusiness um so there's this comparability that um, i sort of Focused um, um, in the book as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it was so interesting that you used um, the term anthropodenialism of you know denying these um, similarities between. I think
1: that's the Wall's term, but I'm not entirely sure. I think it was the Wall that used that term first. Yeah, anthropodenial is anthropodenial. Uh, yes,
0: basically that's what we were doing. And uh, just how interesting yeah. it is as well that kind of where we um do sort of single out certain species like primates, and you mentioned and yeah. um, this idea of primate chauvinism, this you know, that they're closer to us evolutionarily speaking. So they must, of course, have, you know, more sophisticated um emotional lives. And um then when you kind of start to trouble that and look at other species, a lot of things, a lot of Many um, yeah. social systems just start yeah. to kind of fall apart. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, see, the
1: threat, I mean, back to subjectivity, even, in you know, a primate subjectivity pro-
0: probably, um,
1: the threat was real. I mean, like throughout the 20th century, you know, people were um, at risk of losing jobs and careers, you know, if, if they went um, and, you know, if, if they um, discussed that topic of subjectivity, that, you know, if they suggested um, that, you know, other animals may. May have this kind of um, you know emotions and intentions and things like that. It it was an ideology. It was, you know, it, it started as a as a guideline, you know, with, with the early ethologists, you know, Conrad Lawrence and others at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and Safina talks about this, Carl Safina talks about this in a beautiful way in his book, um, Beyond Words, I think it's called. Um, so it started as a useful guideline, you know, to to Uh, try to understand other animals better. Let's just sit here and watch them, you know, be in their natural environment. And we're not going to make any assumptions because they were trying to, you know, dispel myths like evil snakes and dumb sheep and, um, you know, sly foxes and things like that. But then this um, thing just turned into, into this rigid rule and basically into an ideology and it became dangerous to even suggest that, you know, other animals may may feel anything Um, and luckily this started to change uh, you know at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century especially in this last period as I was just saying the other day I was kind of lucky in so many ways that I started my research um, when I did because you know things had started to really rapidly change in that period And, um, and the reason well we are able to talk about this uh, today is uh, is all this work that has been put into into sort of dismantling this oppressive um, oppressive, you know, speciesist system
0: and patriarchal in so many ways too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah, and I guess to return to um grief mm. and um, yeah, the focus of, of your book with grief. Yes. Um, I was wondering- Give us um, your working definition of grief for the purposes of the project, um, and as I thought you, you know, very astutely point out in the book, um, it's really something that varies across human cultures and individuals, um, which may also be the case for animals.
1: Yeah. So um, the definition of grief I work with comes from human grief studies, uh, from Colin Park specifically. He uh, is a long-term. Time um, a student of human grief. He actually worked with John Bowlby back then, um, and his definition is: grief is um, the experience of a loss and a reaction of intense pining and yearning for the object lost, which is basically separation anxiety. Um, and this um, this uh, definition, I thought, was uh, kind of. Um, you know, it just works well in a cross-species context, I think, because it's broad and inclusive enough, but it is also you know, quite concise and uh, specific. And so grief, grief is basically a consequence of the loss of an individual that we are attached to. And uh, the, message, the takeaway message of my book is that the experience of grief in other animals is comparable to ours. Um, and when we learn to appreciate the potency of attachment relations, then we also learn to recognize the potential, you know, psychobiological impact of loss for humans, but also for um, other animals, and certainly all mammals and birds, but probably wider. Now I didn't go into that because we don't really have enough information. But we are learning, you know, that snakes may be looking after each other's babies, you know, just before. I mean, just as the book went into press, there was this. Uh, I just managed to squeeze it in. There was this crocodile who died up in Queensland, and um, his partner—it's actually a farm. It's not a nice place for for baby crocodiles, but, um, um, but they have breeding, or they call breeding stocks, so so individuals that are older, and actually um, they form attachment relations you know they're partners basically and so this male crocodile died and the female was left there in grief and he said the farmer uh, said that you know she's going to stay there for for you know several weeks she went home for food and things like that so uh, there's um, there's obviously more way more than we know but for now we certainly have enough uh, material enough data for mammals and birds you know for, for this attachment relations um and so, um, but we just tend to focus too much on the interpretative domain. you know, human style considerations can certainly add nuances to the experience, but the experience itself, you know grief, as well as many other subjective experiences, are possible because of organismic properties and processes that we share with other animals. And so basically um, my principal points in relation to grief in the book are that first, grief is first and foremost an organismic response to loss. Um, Second, we know normal grief and complicated grief and certain factors such as our developmental context can complicate and prolong grief in humans and non-humans, sorry, other than humans, animals. Um, And third, the feeling of grief and the expression of grief, that is the behavior when we are grieving, are two different things, and we should not use them interchangeably. Um, and yes, in this, in this, in the regard to the last um, uh, point, I um, have a chapter, as part of uh, a chapter, deals with this uh, diversity I- across human cultures. Um, it, it doesn't say very much about anything, really, about non-human animal grief, but... It is a good reminder, you know, to, to, um, that we should not just judge um, someone's grief—the the presence or absence of grief—based on what they do, uh, especially when it comes to animals that we don't know intimately. Like we may be a little more, a little bit more comfortable evaluating grief. Um, In companion species, like we know them intimately, we can tell nuances and, you know, behavioral alterations and even facial expressions. But when it comes to other animals, it's way more difficult. Uh, We just don't know them enough. And then maybe um, they may be also hiding this, like a lot of them hide physical pain. Some species don't even vocalize, not even instinctively don't vocalize, like sheep when they're in pain. When they're physical pain, they vocalize when they're in emotional pain normally but you don't know when it comes to grief because sort of showing um vulnerability can be dangerous It can attract predators and slows you down in all sorts of ways and uh, there's a lot out there that uh uh, well we don't really have enough data uh we we need more data to start to start with just observational data
0: um yeah Um, yeah and i you know it's it's so interesting to um uh, just to bring it into the conversation about um sort of cr- across human cultures mm. um how you know in in today's kind of anthropology we don't assume that we know um about another culture's grieving process and you mention um non-western cultures that have practices like stoicism or mm-hmm. endocannibalism um and things that seem very other to kind of a western gaze um and yet we wouldn't assume that we um understand those practices necessarily yes uh
1: but we can say for certain that if someone loses someone they love then they're grieving like whether they're showing it or not and uh, that's basically what i'm trying to say um in regard to animals but we do have this variety i mean this diversity in human cultures like some cultures are really expressive and they can be expressive either way you know some are are supposed, even if they're not grieving, you know, they get the village together and everyone is like crying and, you know, wailing and things like that. Um, And then you have cultures where they're supposed to be happy, you know, they're like making jokes and they dance and it's just, you know, the way that they've evolved to, to, to express this behavior. And then you have stoic cultures where they're not supposed to do anything. And, you know, a lot of anthropologists say, well, you know, if we didn't actually talk to them if we didn't have a language uh to to, to to ask them how they're feeling about all this and not just grief like there's an anthropologist i can't remember the name or or the um, nations that he was talking to but so he went somewhere and they had just you know finished the war and everyone like looked cheerful and and kind of relaxed and just doing their own things and and uh, he was surprised that, um, you know, how unaffected they seemed, But of course, they were not unaffected. It's just like it was a coping mechanism. And, you know, a lot of animals... Non-human animals live in um, in situations that are not sort of comparable to our affluent society like where we can sort of take you know a week off or I mean it's getting less and less possible even here because the situation is changing but let's say like he can't just you know go and go sick leave when you're uh, when you're grieving or affected in some other way if you're a non-human animal or uh, even a, a human in most places, and so you just learn to deal with it somehow i guess i mean like learn helplessness that's an, a really interesting phenomenon that i find it very interesting which is basically when animals um, don't show uh, sorry um, <laughs> I don't need to to um, animals don't try to change their situation anymore because they've basically given up because they tried and it doesn't work and they just stop trying but this doesn't mean that they like the situation And, um, you know, I constantly think of dairy cows, like we we continuously and routinely take their babies away so that, you know, we can use their milk. Um, And uh, in a lot of cases, the mother is not going to try to protect the baby. And I think that's weird. (laughs) And a lot of people go, well, she doesn't care about the baby. But then I talked to dairy farmers, and uh, and they said, well, um, you know, what happens is that when you get a new worker come in, one that she doesn't know, the cow doesn't know, that has never taken her baby away before, she will try to protect the baby. And then this worker will have to punish her, you know, like with an electric prod or water or whatever, punish her, take the baby away, and then she won't try again with this worker. But she will do it when a new worker comes again. And so like this failure to try to protect the baby can be interpreted as like, well, she doesn't care, but it's really a, a form of learned helplessness. She just knows that, that she can't change it. And I think that if, um, if you just step into their shoes, and I don't think this is like anthropomorphism, it's really just you know basic empathy, um, it, 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 can, it, it can be quite horrifying. I think we need to do more of this because we we want to. I, I, I truly believe that we are not evil, you know, subjects, that we do want to do the right thing. It's just that sometimes it just feels a little bit too much. And so, um, you know, when someone comes and tells us that, um, you know, well, this product that we like, you know, involves cruelty of some kind, you know, human cruelty, as in like, you know, human slavery or, you know, animal cruelty or whatever, we just don't want to know because life is complicated and we can't monitor everything, we have to trust the system to a certain extent, It just you know, you have to and uh, you didn't have a choice and, um, and then and then it kind of it makes you uncomfortable, and you have to look for other products and things like that. But um, but that's what you know. That's what we do. Like we trust the system to a certain extent, and you remain remain alert and informed, and uh, you know, um, open to 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 new things, and to try to do better. Um, yeah. Sorry, I got carried away. <laughs> oh no, that's, that's
0: wonderful. I'm no, no. I'm yeah, and. Um, you write about this question of whether non-human animals, quote unquote, understand death as non-returnability um, right. and whether they are conscious of um, others' mortality and their own mortality. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak a bit more about this, as well as the kind of slipperiness of trying to settle this question from um, the point of view of our limited human subjectivity. Mm. Yeah, that's um,
1: those questions come up a lot. Um, and, but we're really talking about a couple of things. One is, um, do they understand that they're mortal? No, um, I think that we. Well, I know that we don't know that, uh, and I think it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter because well, humans ourselves understand death in you know and, and our own mortality in all sorts of ways. You know, like most humans view it as a death, they view it as a kind of transition, not as an inhalation. So we tend to assume, okay, well, we, you know, death is an inhalation. That's how we see it. That's how the secular, you know, Western human sees it. But that's not really how most of the rest of the society, even in the West, um, sees it. Um, And it also doesn't matter because when even humans lose someone they truly love, you know, our first response is not going to be, oh, my God, I'm going to die one day. It's actually quite the opposite. A lot of humans you know, don't know how to live on without this person, you know, at least initially. And if you know, we develop complicated grief, then it drags on. Um, and the other thing is um, the question uh, about uh, a recognition of death, whether you know, they recognize death, whether they know that someone is you know, dead and not alive and they're not going to come back as uh, you know, back in in what they used to look like before. Uh, And I think the answer here is an emphatic yes. I mean, evolutionarily, animals have been exposed to a lot of death. You know, animals live in a real world out there, exposed to all sorts of things. And we tend to forget this when we study them in labs or, you know, generally, Non holistically, I mean, like it's very useful, vital actually to know the difference between a dead and a sleeping animal be this your child, a predator, a prey you know, like it determines energy investment to start with. But uh, I think that animals have different ways of telling that a subject is dead. You know, smell can be an important uh, thing for some animals, like ants, but even my sheep, like when. My Charlie, the dog, died um, 2000, in 2009. He was um, sort of—he was very sick. Um, he had cancer. It was very sick um, in the last stages. And we go for a walk every night with the sheep and with Charlie at the time. And so, um, in the last weeks, I was carrying him in my lap for these walks, and he liked it. And the sheep were, um, you know, used to it. And when he died. I wanted to show them that he's dead. and I like um I don't I'm, I'm pretty sure that, as I was just saying, that they they can't tell these things. I don't know how she can tell it. Um, but anyway, I was carrying him to them in my lap as norm, as I would normally do for our walks, and I sort of landed down so that they could see or smell or whatever they were gonna do. And they came one by one and jumped off. I mean, like, it was so emphatic. And, I again, I don't know if they saw something, but they probably smelled it because I think they're a bit more olfactory. And it was just um, sad but incredibly interesting at the same time. You know, one by one would come up to to sniff Charlie or whatever and jump off. And And so they definitely knew that he was dead because, you know, we did that before, you know, to say hi, like a come sheep. When he was alive, you know, they'd come to say hi to him when he was in my lap and they weren't jumping off. So there was a change that they registered. So humans, we are more visually oriented, of course, and for, for most of our history, we look for signs like immobility you know, stiffening of the body, color changes, maggots and things like that. Um, The current hospital criteria for death is irreversible cessation of circulation and respiration or irreversible brain function. Um, And and the official, and I I think the official mature understanding of the concept of death is is incredibly anthropocentric and probably also ableist. But um, it includes the universality criterion that is that death is inevitable, including for me. Uh, So this is basically the question of understanding mortality and the understanding that death is a consequence of the breakdown of bodily functions. Now, I don't have a problem with people having, you know, theoretical mature or immature understandings of this concept. The problem is that they, a lot of the time, this is used to kind of deny that other animals, as well as children and probably uh, those humans that don't have this capacity, um, that they the their grief is sort of comparable, and I think that that is just not true. It's just wrong. It doesn't matter, you know. If you look yeah. If you, it, it's a it's a it's more organismic than that. Um, and again, like that's why I go into some detail in the in the attachment chapter just to. Um one reviewer thought that maybe I didn't need to go into such details because, you know, people know about it. But every time I spoke to people afterwards, they said, no, we actually needed that detail because we don't like we know generally what's supposed to be, but we don't actually have the details. And once you do start to get these details, you see how, you know, how, how potent uh, attachments are. And then as a consequence uh, also loss, how, how detrimental that could be in, in certain situations, you know, depending again on, on, on the relationship lost. Mm.
0: Yeah. I'm. Um, I wonder if to return to, um, attachment theory, if you could, um, sort of give, a a brief overview of, um, that approach in your book and, and why you chose, um, attachment theory as a way of thinking about, um, animals relationships um, you know in interspecies and intraspecies yeah
1: well uh that was uh, an interesting discovery attachment theory um because well i just again i just didn't know and when i started to read about it it was incredible it just explained so much <laughs> so um Um, attachment relations are generally important you know in infancy they are critical and later in life they're also very useful so in infancy basically when we are born or hatched as I was mentioning before our brain is not fully developed Um, and neither is our organism's psychobiological regulation and I'm talking about stuff that you know will determine how we cope with stress uh, whether we are sensitized to certain things or not, you know how vulnerable or resilient we are and things like that. And so both the brain and this regulation develop in interaction with the parent or, or other primary caregiver. you know it doesn't need to be a parent. And the, the caregiver guides our responses to things and this affects the internal patterns that we start to form. You know, for example, if we get upset as infants, as babies the caregiver will try to soothe us and we hope they do and if the if we soothe when you know we're upset if the caregiver has the capacity to soothe us then our organism learns that soothing is possible that you know stress can be tolerated and um, regulated and overcome in the end now if we can't soothe when we're uh, upset if the caregiver doesn't have this capacity to relieve our stress, our organism learns that soothing is not possible or that it is not so easy. And all this drags on into the rest of our lives, into adulthood, because all this stuff develops way before we're capable of autobiographical memories, you know, analyzing things of deciding what we're letting in and not it is also harder to access later in life, um, you know, if it turns out that we need to. And, and and this period is also when our sense of self starts to emerge. You know, this is not the self, the things itself, um, you know, like do all the good in this dress or whatever. Um, it's 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 a it's the exper what, what I call the experiential self the, the the sort of more fundamental aspect of ourselves the the self that feels the self and Daniel Siegel he's um, a professor of psychiatry and an author has this beautiful line he says we first know ourselves as reflected in the other <laughs> this is so deep and this is so encaptured encapsulates this whole issue so beautifully. And so this um, interactions with the caregiver, um, the infant receives a lot of information about the self. Uh, and again, I'm talking about the implicit self, um, not the explicit. And then we build this into how we end up feeling about ourselves. And what I mean is like, uh, you know, as adults, then it will, uh, will, it basically answers questions like, am I a lovable person or not? Uh, you know, am I the kind of person that uh, is likely to receive help from others or not? Uh, And this is all kind of linked to this early experience with with, um, the caregivers. And that is um, actually quite scary in so many ways, but it also provides, you know, a base for resilience as well. And in adulthood, we remain relational creatures. You know, we uh, rely on relations to regulate us and keep us in an optimal arousal zone, you know, to intensify positive feelings and alleviate pain and other negative feelings. Um... And and when loss happens, our system gets quite an impact and it can destabilize, you know, sometimes quite substantially and animals can develop so-called complicated grief. Um, so that's kind of the core of it. Uh, and complicated grief, I believe, is a reality for non-human animals uh, because of, I don't know if we want to go into that. I'll, I'll let it ask another question before I drag on too much about this.
0: Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you about, um, human observed and sort of recognizable to humans, um, grief behaviors in non-human animals. Um, I think the one that many people are familiar with is, um, you know, elephants have been observed to bury their dead and engage in mourning rituals. Um, And in the book you mention um, some lesser known instances, um, including magpies, um, whales, pigs, also chimps, which I think people are familiar with as well. so, yeah, I wonder if you could speak a bit more about um, what we have observed in animal grief.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, actually, um, the book is not so much about examples. Um, I do have a few, but I, I didn't actually um, uh, elaborate on that very much. And I myself haven't read a lot about that because I was more interested in this uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, deeper organismic uh, aspect of it. But, you know, there are lots of examples in Barbara Kingsbuck, um, various examples, various species. So, um, certainly there are uh, things that we recognize as uh, grief because, well, the behavior is kind of perhaps more similar to what we do, like with elephants burying or doing something with the body. But again, we're talking about um, our Western society, the you know the other societies that don't do that, that don't bury, for example, that have you know don't, don't put dirt uh, soil onto corpses. So I guess that is more recognizable to us. And then we have um, yeah the, I mean when there is an alteration of behavior um, that is clearly something is happening. You know, uh, it's undeniable that what is happening exactly, then that's kind of hard to know. But you can just assume that if it was a close relationship, then, um, you know, the, the the one that is left, that survived, is going to be affected. And uh, it's... Sorry, I was about to go back into complicated degree, uh, But, um, yeah, so if there is a behavioral alteration of of, of any kind, really, uh, we can assume that something is going on. But what I'm trying to say is that um, a lot of animals may not do that, may not show it, uh, or we're not there when they do it. It's like, I mean, how close are we to animals, really? We can observe them in, say, zoos um on farms but no one does that because that's not you know why they have farms to to, you know to look after the emotional aspects and things and companion animals and the rest is pretty much and okay like elephants are big creatures and you know if they do something in the wild someone's gonna notice it probably if they're around but um yeah i i believe that um that we, I mean, like we are getting more interested in this topic anyway. There is, is um, um, a new field, you know, evolutionary tenatology. and part of the purpose of this field is to gather more information about um, about what other animals may be doing around death, and uh, that is very useful because, I mean, the field itself, because they actually call in out to people, you know, to researchers that do other kinds of research, whatever it is, you know, to pay. Some attention to to this aspect of life, death that is, um, in other animals, and I think that we are going to get a lot more um, information, and then it will be easier to perhaps even you know build certain frameworks uh, for various species. You know, elephants, we know that they do that, and uh, uh, but we don't know very much about others really. All the chimpanzees, I mean, the prime some of the primates um, do the carin, We know that and some of the whales too, uh, but again you never really know until you have a lot of data, you never know whether it's something that that individual is doing, you know, it's a personal thing or it's actually a little broader and, and there's a tendency um, in the species to, to sort of do something like that and we just need more data and, and I think it's great that we're talking about this, not just because we're, you know, for voyeuristic reasons, Um, in terms of what they're doing but also because then it you know it it um um, we uh, basically um get people to to think about grief itself and then you know the emotions um, other animals emotions and perhaps um start to respect this a little bit more
0: yeah and i mean at this point it it definitely um just continues to open up questions um which is yeah um very exciting, really. um and I was also really interested in um what you wrote about um place attachment as the developmental origins of spiritual meaning. Um, and you mentioned um the psychological pain of leaving one's home or having one's home or landscape environment uh, violated. And uh, later on, as well, you write very eloquently about um human's capacity to feel grief for um, subjects we do not know, such as the billions of non-human animals suffering and dying in the Anthropocene, um, to quote the book. And you include in that discussion um, the grief and trauma experienced by activists and the very marginalized people um, working in slaughterhouses. Um, And yeah, um, to kind of talk about place attachment, um, as well as this sort of psychological grief um, for the other, um, the term climate grief has been coming into play um, more and more frequently as we're facing the very rapid destruction of the natural world around us. Which I'm sure, as um, someone in Australia, you know, you've experienced these terrible fires there, um, as had you know, the Western U.S. as well um, has experienced that, and. Um, I'm interested to hear, um, your thoughts on climate grief, both in regard to, um, non-human animals, possible grief, um, uh, the loss of habitat, um, et cetera, and our own capacity for grief, um, at the loss of unknown species. Um, and yeah, if you could speak about that a bit. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, well, last
1: year, no, no, it's broad. <laughs> Um broad, uh, yeah, where to start, um, let, let's start with last year we had terrible fires here, so all through summer, um, basically um, December and January, actually started in November, um, we were kind of ready to evacuate. The van was packed with, you know, sheep food and things, and the car was packed with human stuff. And we were ready to jump into the van and car and just drive off. And mean, you know, we had a few addresses. Because everything around us was burning. And I mean, literally, there was this giant fire three kilometers away on the north and a couple of kilometers away from um, on the south. And uh, we were just here in this little... <laughs> so, yes, we did experience that. And the entire thing was just like soil. There was no... Nothing green around us. It was either burned down or just plain soil, and it was a complete devastation. And then a month later, we had floods, <laughs> and so the entire area was basically we have a swamp down at the bottom of the property, and uh, it was basically turned into this big lake. And it was quite dramatic. And then COVID started, so um, it's been an interesting year. But it's um it's really, um, I think it's hard to really imagine, even uh, to imagine the devastation that actually happened out there and all these animals that lost their homes, including human animals, like there's still a lot of humans here that, you know, are living in tents and things because they haven't been able to rebuild um, their homes yet. Um, And I think that that's, i I'm not even sure that we're capable of doing that of imagining, let alone of uh, of uh, feeling with those animals because it would just be too devastating. I think we do have limits of tolerance and it's a good thing because we could just get absorbed not, uh, I mean I don't mean absorbed <laughs> I mean burnout entirely if we were able to feel all that pain. We can get close, but I think it would just be. Too devastating but we certainly can um, feel with animals that we don't know uh, there is uh, so this, this last chapter in the book talks about you know grieving for unknown animals um, and that is basically it it is based in a way on uh, what we call vicarious trauma and grief and that is a kind of secondary um, grief and trauma this is um, so you have this primary uh victim of violence or you know of of, uh, having suffered a loss of some kind and uh, say like your friend was affected by a loss or a mother cow that we talked about before and so you're exposed to this grief of your friend or the cow and you internalize this grief and then you develop grief yourself and this uh, grief is very intense. It's comparable to the grief of the primary griever. Um, and so when, when we grieve with or for unknown animals, as I say in the book, we never grieve the unknown. We always grieve the known. Like we know these animals at some deep level and in some very profound way. Um, we know that they wanted to live, that they wanted to be happy, that they wanted to live in a safe place and have, you know, enough food and enough friends and be free of pain, psychological and and physical, and that we, they are completely comparable to us in all these um, important fundamental ways. And then they they suffered when you know uh, they lost their homes, when they burned alive, when you know they they lost their friends, and when there was nothing around, there was no food anywhere the water even if it was around there wasn't much but it was contaminated with ash We still a, a tank a water tank one of our water tanks is um, you know the water in there is still completely brown we have to do something about it um so it's um it was basically nothing it was just a complete devastation it was just if you can imagine it um um so this is, um, yeah, basically, um, it, it's a form of, you know, vicarious grieving uh, we feel with these animals, even though we, we're not there with them necessarily um, and we don't know them. And this is a, a real issue for people generally who work with victims of violence of any species, you know, human or others. I think there's a campaign going on to try to raise awareness about um, vets and suicide in the U.S. at the moment, isn't there? And that's partly, there was something on social media, about you know, um, anyway, um, suicide and, and other forms of uh, sort of uh, dealing with, if you want, vicarious trauma and grief are very common in um, veterinarians and, you know, animal control workers, uh, human doctors and lawyers even who are, you know, dealing with um, victims of violence and you know, pro bono things um and um sorry i got a bit lost now i th- yeah anyway um climate <laughs> climate grief um yeah it's just it's i guess it's a new reality that we have to deal with but um I just hope that we don't give up, you know, that we don't feel so powerless that we just, you know, stop doing things. It's um, We really have to be constructive. We have to focus on what we can do and just do it and start there. Um, Otherwise we just get consumed. Yeah.
0: I think you really beautifully um, kind of, point out that there are these um traps we can fall into of sort of viewing nature in this very voyeuristic, consumptive way as um, something to escape to or something that's pure. Um and in a way thinking about kind of grief and loss and devastation. Um
1: yeah not I just mean, of this that. Is like other types of pain, you know, like um if you have physical pain that is not a bad thing that's a good thing because it's a warning you know that something has to be done and so grief and and other types of emotional pain um that we are experiencing it's not you know it's not there just to be there it's it's um it's it's it gives us the opportunity to address these issues that caused grief. Well, I mean, if someone dies and you can't do very much, but you know, when it comes to climate grief and uh, similar sort of vaster uh, things, um, it's it's really just it's an opportunity. We feel it, you know, it hurts. Let's change it. Let's let's not adopt this victim mentality, which is. pervasive out in the world you know people just feel powerless but you're not powerless because whatever you do it's gonna have an impact and you get to choose you know small big whatever you get to choose what that impact is gonna be you know whether you're gonna help yourself and the world or you're just gonna like you know not (laughs) and I think that is something that we Need to, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just come to you. I think you have to focus on it and sort of focus on this um, circle of influence. (laughs) This is an interesting concept by, um, what's his name? Stephen Covey, I think, is the author of the book. He talks about the circle of influence and the circle of concern. So you have this circle of concern. First, and inside the circle of concern is the circle of influence. The circle of concern basically comprises anything that you're concerned about, you know, that you think about, you worry about. The circle of influence is inside the circle of concern, and it comprises things you can actually do something about. And there is likely to be some issues that are of concern to you that you can actually do something about. And when you start working in this circle of influence on the issues that you can actually affect somehow in your daily life, then this circle of influence starts to expand and takes more and more space within this broader, larger circle of concern. I'm not sure I explained this properly, but you can look it up because I think it's a really powerful concept and it it helped me sort of to to refocus on on things that i can do as opposed to just worrying too much about what i can't do because again if you if you focus on the circle of concern then that one sort of gets expands and starts to shrink the circle of influence and you spend too much time worrying and not doing much and then you find that you actually don't have any power any influence because you just drown in this concern, and you know that will that will um, apply to everything: climate grief, and just about every aspect of our lives, personal and less personal.
0: Um, I have one final question for you, which is um, a bit more general, but um, you know we're living in this era where you know, particularly in the West. Um, animals are this huge part of our culture. Um, And at the same time, they're very systemically undervalued and abused. Um, We have this, you know, pets, pets own the internet. There's, you know, companion animals are all over the internet. Pet ownership is at this, you know, its highest level ever. Um, And in so many developed countries, people spend, you know, truly astronomical sums of money on companion animals. Um, I don't know what the exact figure is for the U.S., um, for spending on pets, but it's it's a huge market. Um and people will um you know uh pay for things like therapy for animals, antidepressants for domestic animals. Um and at the same time as all of this, we're living in this era where we have um meat and animal product consumption um, really at an unprecedented scale. Um and we're seeing animal slaughterhouses, factory farming at this level that you know even 50 years ago, nobody would have thought possible. Um, and I was wondering if you um, had any thoughts on kind of this cognitive dissonance um, where we, we love animals so much and at the same time, we're kind of increasingly um, killing and abusing other species.
1: Yes, um,
0: <laughs> um,
1: that is, um, yeah, very problematic. Um, I think a lot of people actually don't know what goes on out there um I think that um, as I was saying before um well we've been you know we were a lot of us well at least here in the west we we were brought up um being taught that you know some animals are for food and other animals are pets and things like that and uh, and we also trust the system to sort of have measures in place to like we all agree that you know all animals suffer uh but we also trust the system to to have something there you know um to protect these animals from what they call unnecessary pain and the system doesn't i mean they have guidelines but they're not mandatory um you know you can basically do anything you want to farm animal you can kill them whichever way you want and that's that's um, part of the problem that, again, we don't talk about, and that is slaughterhouse workers, which I also kind of um, addressed briefly in the last chapter. And they're also victims of this um, you know, greed for for cheap meat and a lot of cheap meat. Um, someone has to kill the animals, obviously, if others want to eat it. And as it turns out, um, people that do the kill and slaughterhouse workers have... Um, um, Incredible! It's 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 basically it's um it's um, taxing <laughs> psychologically. It's it's you know physically dangerous work, but it's also very taxing psychologically, and um, it's just there's just no easy way to kill a sentient individual that doesn't want to die, and um, and so this you know people end up using substances and um, and 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 this psychological toll extends out into their communities like it, it's becoming more and more evident that um, um, communities where there are slaughterhouses there's more violence there you know domestic violence and other violence compared to you know other uh, so-called manufacturing industries and so, so that's that's something that we don't talk about as well but we should because like when we are buying meat we are also supporting that. As well as of course uh, supporting animal abuse and because of this um, problem like because we have actual you know people uh, killing the animals and these people normally unless there's something perhaps wrong with them um, um, would not normally choose this kind of job but it's just something that they take because there's nothing else around and um, and um, a lot of the abuse, I mean, the, the extra abuse, you know, killing itself is quite violent in itself, but a lot of the additional abuse that, um, that we, um, witness, not a lot because they tend not to show this, but, you know, there's uh, more and more undercover investigations, um, coming out, um, uh, of the, uh, of the abuse in slaughterhouses actually comes from workers' coping mechanism. They have to kind of, um, uh, take, you know strip the animal of any kind of uh, subjectivity if you want of any kind of worth to be able to kill them and so to do that they're gonna you know abuse them directly abuse them and um, and this is just i mean this is you know our minds doing stuff just to be able to cope in that horrible place that the slaughterhouse is but you know on a more positive note i think there is a lot of I mean, people are becoming, or people with money, perhaps. Maybe that's how you know things are going to change. People with money are investing into alternative protein sources, um, and the fake meat market is just boosting. I mean, I've been a vegan for over 15 years now, 16 years, and back then, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm actually completing a cookbook at the moment. Back then, we didn't have anything uh but now it's just like it's everywhere and it's amazing because you know like it's, it's not cruel to animals and it, it it's not so taxing for the environment because the meat industry is just like amazing such a polluter of everything and um and uh, and it tastes the same so um uh, we are we are changing uh, i mean slowly obviously uh but uh, it's just unsustainable, and um, we are becoming to realize that, you know, there's no economy on a dead planet, and you're not going to be able to make money out of um, animal agriculture very much anymore. And so it's just a matter of uh, – I mean, there's still some, you know, governments. They're a bit backward, well, most of them. But I think things are changing because there's just no other way of going on.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, I don't know, we'll see what the next 10, 15, 20 years um, look like. And I wonder um, just what kind of the chaos of the past year, um, like what what effect that will have. I know that um, there was a lot of outcry over um, workers' conditions um, for Tyson slaughterhouse, um, meat slaughterhouses um, here in the U.S. And um, very, very bad um, COVID outbreaks there. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if that would turn anyone, <laughs> you know, onto the kind of bigger picture there. Uh, I, I think thing
1: that, thing. I mean, we are, you know, um, people don't like, uh, no animal likes novelty. Novelty is always a bit scary. I mean, maybe we get excited at some safe novelty, but, you know, for big novelties, for big changes, things are a bit scary. We have, like our little cozy, you know, things that we know, and that's normal. But when we actually show people, Um, that there are other options and they're safe and you know they're totally okay no one's gonna suffer then I think that people will jump at it like um, one of my one of the greatest things about my cookbook is probably the only great thing about my cookbook because the rest is quite average is cheeses like I make this people say amazing vegan cheeses out of cashews and um, and when people try that, it's just like go, oh my god, you can eat that, you know, without dairy. And uh, just the other day, yesterday, I think some someone was able to produce um, dairy. I mean, the, the milk that tastes exactly like dairy out of some yeast. And I think that people are actually. Pour in. I mean, that's the best thing But humans, not many great things about humans, but <laughs> some of them is like this creativity that we are capable of when we have to. And things are happening all over the world. You know, people coming up with pineapple leather, with um, hemp airplanes. Apparently someone constructed a hemp airplane that runs on the hemp oil. And it's just amazing. You know, when we put our energy together to do the right thing, I think we can we can do miracles. And so I'm hoping that that uh, that's what's going to happen because we certainly need miracles.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Thea. And I just wanted to state again that Thea's book is Enter the Animal Across Species Perspectives on Grief and Spirituality. And it's available now from Sydney University Press. Thank you, Ren.